Devon Dragon Radio. I'm your host, ML Rooschalk. I'm here with David Poses. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great now you have this wonderful book out and it's a true story. It's called The Weight of Air, a story of lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. Yes. Uh, comes so, out of- so how did you get to writing this book? Because I'm assuming this is your story. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is my story. Um, I, uh, writing had always been, um, I guess I wouldn't call it a passion, uh, it's more of a bodily urge. Um, I basically went from one novel to the next and wrote a bunch of short stories, but I was too afraid of failure to do anything with them. Um, I struggled with, with drugs and depression for, um, decades and kept it from everyone in my life. And, um, as the opioid crisis, uh, before there was an opioid crisis, but as, as people started dying, um, and addiction was becoming a, a national health emergency, I felt like um, I knew that I wasn't the exception. Um, and I, I felt like uh, I, I was just overwhelmed with, with guilt and shame for deceiving my family. Um, and I believed that my story would be able to help others. Um, so I, I wrote this book. Well, that's always a good thing that we take one of our negatives and turn it into a positive for someone else. I know the opioid problem epidemic is an epidemic. It's globally. It's not always in the forefront of everyone's thoughts, but it's there. Yes. Yeah. I've had family members that have struggled with this. So as a person that has seen this, I understand that there's an internal struggle and an external struggle. Um, I, I don't know if epidemic is a, a fair word. Um, epidemics can be contained, and based on our response, it's really uh, a plague. I mean, we're, we, we couldn't have possibly planned uh, to be, you know, it's just built for failure, basically. Well, I know we don't plan for it. I don't think there's actually a cure-all, but because, one, you have to have something tailored per person. It's not going to, a program that works for me, for so, say, won't necessarily work for you. We have to work with the individual, not with just a overall thing. It doesn't work for everyone. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely no, uh, I mean, there's no universal profile of addiction. Uh, there's no universal warning signs. So there's definitely no universal cure, um, but there are uh, things medically assisted treatment, buprenorphine and methadone are proven to dramatically cut um, the risk of overdose, relapse and death. Uh, while the predominant treatment model, which is faith and abstinence, is actually proven to dramatically increase the risk of, of relapse, overdose, and death. So really, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there and things that we just kind of accept that are baked into our collective conscious. And, and, and that was you know, part of the idea of this book was that I went through, um, by the time I was 19, before I stopped, uh, before I started keeping secrets, I had been through um, every every conventional form of treatment from um, inpatient rehab to medical detox to um, halfway house, uh, AA meetings, NA meetings, you know, 12 step, the whole thing. And it, it um, 
it just, I, I couldn't reconcile my experience with that mentality. I mean, the idea that, um, you know, my addiction is a symptom. Um, depression was my gateway. Uh, heroin, um, you know, it, it, it killed my emotional pain. Um, it's a painkiller and that's what it does. So the idea that, uh, you know, we're pushing this, you know, sobriety is the answer. Um, sobriety cures your physical dependence upon a substance, but not the compulsion to use. And so addiction is um, compulsive use despite negative consequences. So if you stop doing something, that doesn't make you not want to do it, you know? Right. So, so dealing with everything that led up to the drug use, um, that's definitely on an individual basis and it needs to be taken care of. When I was in rehab, they said, and, and I you know, insisted on these things, they said, no, 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 um, depression's an excuse, that's addict mentality, uh, you know, addiction is your problem. And, and I knew that that wasn't true. And, and I knew um, that my experience, uh, you know, I, I, I was the norm. I mean, I never met a you know, stereotypical junkie um, and so the idea of, of spreading this um, became really, you know, imp important to me. And over the years, like 25 years ago, I was, um, you know, an outlier spewing blasphemy. And over the past couple of years, um, you know, it, it's nice that addiction science has been reflecting my, you know, crazy opinions as irrevocable facts. Um, that certainly helps. Right. We, uh, over the last 15 years, we've seen a lot of new studies come out, depending on how addiction works for a, an individual. We've seen the methadone, we've seen um, treatment centers, we've seen go here for this treatment, go here for that treatment, uh, more Al-Anon and AA meetings popping up everywhere. But at the same time, I also have, well, you're an addict, so here's your needles. We'll give you, please come to our hospital. We will give you clean needles. Mm -hmm. um, this is a program that's in my city, actually. Um, I've never been an addict, so I don't have that mentality. But at the same time, my family does have addicts. Mm -hmm. So I see this and I see them. I see the lies. You can call them out on the lies and you get more lies. Well, of course you do. I mean, you know, we're, we're uh, ashamed. We're breaking the law. Mm -hmm. So of course we're going to lie. I mean, you know, and, exactly. and extrapolating that to everything else. I mean, you know, look, I'm, I'm an honest person. I lied about my drug use because I was ashamed of it. That doesn't mean that I'm lying about everything else. And I think that, you know, holds true. And a lot of the, um, you know, kind of attitudes about drugs, like, I mean, you know, I said to um, uh, one of my relatives recently, you know, look, if you heard the way you sound when you talk about drugs, you'd know why I don't want to talk to you about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, um, but the, I mean, the needle exchange programs and all of that stuff, I mean, clean needles um, stop the spread of disease and save lives. Um, right. I nobody, get it. Yeah, no, nobody's, nobody's uh, starting to use drugs because clean needles are available. Otherwise, every doctor in the hospital would be um, on drugs right now. So, you know, we kind of, we're, we're, we're moralizing this problem and not looking at it from a health and safety perspective. The fact is like, you know, my family was not happy um, nobody wanted me to be using drugs or mm -hmm. certainly injecting heroin, but I'm quite certain that they're happier that I'm alive now um, mm -hmm. than if I would have died of AIDS because I couldn't get clean needles. So, you know, we, we were looking at it like, you know, if you fall off your bike and hurt your head, you know, that's a head injury. So we're not going to give you a helmet because that would be crazy. You're engaging in reckless behavior. I mean, with everything else, anything that's dangerous, we find ways to make it safe. With this, we're, we're moralizing it and we're just saying, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And then, you know, AIDS, um, we have these AIDS outbreaks. We have, you know, the, the safe consumption sites. 
Um, you know, nobody wants them in their town and that's fine. But the fact is in the history of safe injection sites all over the world, all of them 100% since the first one ever opened, everybody that's ever been in one, there's never been an overdose fatality in one of them. They save lives. Nobody wants them. That's fine. They work. <laughs> well, I have no opinion either way. I, I love my family, but at the same time, I want them here, but I also want them clean. But I can't always get what I want. You know, well, I mean, that's exactly the thing. So yeah. if, you, if you know that, then the question is, do you want to reduce harm or do you mm -hmm. want to increase it? And I, you know, if you want to increase harm, then, I mean, you know, uh, I, I feel bad for you, but um, <laughs> I, I don't imagine that anybody wants to. And it's not, it's not the, the question isn't, you know, of course, everybody wants people to stop using drugs. But, you know, as you said, if you can't have that, then your other options are death or mm -hmm. saving lives. Right. Know? If, if, I mean, if, we've gone through, um, like I said, I have family members. I have a sister that's two years clean, thankfully, finally. 30 years later, we finally got her clean. <laughs> so, and I have a niece that's two months clean. So we're dealing with it, but at the same time, it, they're going through programs and each one is tailored for them. Mm -hmm. What works for them? because what works for my sister didn't work for my niece. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get it, I get the outsider perspective. I hear the insider for my family mm -hmm. and I'm thankful for books like yours because now we can bridge that gap. Right, yeah, I mean, that's that's really the idea is to um, you know get it more out in the open. I mean, you know, we, we as a society, like we, we make a lot of these assumptions that um, you know just simply aren't true. I mean, we understand opioids for physical pain in the sense that you know your foot gets chopped off, doctor prescribes opioids. Like nobody's going to say that doesn't make sense. Of course, it makes sense. Your foot got chopped off. Yeah. Right. So opioids um, regulate physical pain and emotional well-being. So emotional unwell-being is pain. They target your opiate receptors. Heroin doesn't know if your foot got chopped off or if you're miserably depressed. And so at the top of this problem is this double standard of, we know that we can't will away physical pain. We think we can will away psychological pain. And until 1914, opioids were the default medication for anxiety, trauma, depression, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. um, since we- They were put in Coca-Cola, they were put in root beer. Cocaine was in Coca-Cola, but yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, so- we, we understand them for physical pain. We don't understand them for emotional pain, but opioids don't care about that. They don't know if you have a prescription. They don't know what kind of pain you're trying to kill. So the idea that somebody's taking them because they're depressed and they don't have any other resources. I mean, I, I was suicidal. Like my alternative was, was suicide to heroin. Um, you know, so, so it's not like, oh, just don't use drugs and you'll be fine. Like mm -hmm. we, we, we're, having, we're in the middle of a mental health crisis. I mean, depression rates are skyrocketing. The idea of just say no, if the least likely person to just say no to a painkiller is somebody who's in pain. And everybody does the best they can with the options that they have at the time. I mean, nobody wants to be a junkie, mm -hmm. um, you know, but uh, it, it's, it's, we have this, uh, you know, this structure set up that just doesn't really understand what's actually going on. And we lump everything together as recreational drugs and we invalidate the common denominator among all opioid users. I mean, it's pain, pain is the gateway. And if we're not going to do anything about the pain that's, I mean, we should be hating the reasons that people are using drugs as much as we hate drugs. Like, let's hate depression. Let's go to war with uh, anxiety and trauma. I mean, we, we judge people for using drugs, but we don't say, well, why are you using drugs? I mean, mm -hmm. 
you know, and people don't ask that. It's generally, oh my God, they're on drugs. We got to freak out and get them off it. You're killing everybody. You're killing your family. This is terrible. You know, and that, that's fine. I mean, they're, they're dangerous. I, I understand that. But, you know, for years after I got sober, um, I would go around saying, oh, heroin is pure evil. It's, uh, it steals your soul and things like that, because, you know, that's what I thought people wanted to hear. But by saying that, I'm invalidating my reasons for using. I mean, I, I couldn't function without it because I was so terribly depressed and I didn't know what to do about that. And so, um, you know, nobody ever says, what are you trying to accomplish with this drug use? Like, what's the problem? It's just, we assume that the drugs are the problem. Um, I mean, you know, if you've ever seen that TV show Hoarders, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like in every episode, I mean, I haven't seen a lot of them, but in every episode of Hoarders, it's always like, you know, here's Joe's house, it's filled with crap, um, you know, and his problem isn't that he can't stop buying things from Walmart. The problem is his wife died three years ago and it was tragic and he hasn't dealt with the grief right and blah, blah, blah. So we know that it's a compulsive behavior, which is a mental health disorder. Mm-hmm. Addiction is, uh, you know, compulsive use despite negative consequences. So by stopping the behavior, by getting Joe to stop buying stuff at Walmart, that doesn't mean he's dealt with his wife's death and he's over the grief or anything like that. It just means he's not buying shit at Walmart anymore. And right. so what we're doing with this is we're pushing this idea that, that abstinence is the cure and it's just not. Um, it, you, you, and we use it so interchangeably with recovery, like you have to unpack the baggage that led to the drug use. Just not taking drugs, not doing anything isn't gonna make you not wanna do it, whether you're addicted to drugs or sex or gambling or food or running or, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. With running, we didn't, you know, if I was depressed and running made me feel better, nobody's gonna say, oh my God, running is causing all of your pain. You gotta stop running. You're not gonna be, you know. Yeah. You're no one's gonna say it because as a positive, what we see as a positive. Much, much healthier, much healthier, no question. You know, but still, um, you know, no, nobody's gonna say that, but it is the exact same thing. It's a compulsion for relief. So what are you trying to relieve the pain from? Why don't we deal with that? And, and we're just not doing that. I mean, we're, we're, we're very judgmental and, and moral. And, um, you know, I was, so, I mean, I, ha- I had a very successful career in, in private equity for 20 years. I'm, I'm the breadwinner for my family. You know, I'm married, I'm a father. I certainly didn't want to, you know, go around screaming this in public, but I just felt like, um, you know, if I'm, um, I'm, I'm actively working against the changes that I want to see in the world if I'm silent, because if I'm denying the existence of my struggle, how can I expect anybody else to talk about it? And I'm coming from a place where, you know, I second guessed everything that I said. I would reread emails after I sent them and think that everybody's, you know, hates me and all that kind of business. And so it's really, you know, kind of miraculous to be in a place where I, I really don't care if anybody wants to judge me for it. I, I know that this is right. I know that everything that I'm saying is, is not some crazy opinion. It's scientific facts. And this is just how it is. So if somebody wants to say, oh, my God, that sounds crazy, you know, that's fine. That, that's their opinion. But that doesn't make it true. And, you know, they might not like it, but, I, you know, that's not my problem. I mean, we have the same judgmental opinion. We go to... Um, the show 600 Pound of Life on the same network as the hoarders. We judge people because we see their physical well-being. Sure. We don't know what's going on inside their mind. Now the show digs in, okay, we need to deal with the problem. And a lot of times they will bring a psychologist, psychologist or whatever on the show to deal with the person's inner problem. We need to apply that mentality that, hey, this isn't just a physical that we're seeing, but a, there's something going on in the brain and in the mind, in the essence of the person, not just a physical response. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, depression is a degenerative biological, uh, you know, issue. So the the idea that that it's just going to go away because you stopped. I mean, you know, if we look at it from the from the physical side, which you know, again, we understand, like the idea that bad people use painkillers instead of people who are in pain use painkillers, like that gets us off on this crazy tangent. But like, if your foot gets chopped off and you stop taking painkillers, your pain is going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And the idea of like, oh no, no, you're going to feel much better when you stop. So like, we're setting up this crazy false hope that we actually know. I mean, we debunk these myths in our everyday life. We know it's not true if your foot got chopped off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and yet we insist that these things are true um, on the other side because they're just so baked into our collective consciousness. But, you know, again, that doesn't make them true. And we, we have to, it's, you're exactly right. We have to go after every individual has their own issues. And if we're going to dismiss them, then, I mean, we really have no right saying that we're treating anything because we're just not. Right. Sometimes we have to go back to early childhood. Sometimes we have to go back to a more recent, like a death in the family. We have to look at the individual. We need to find the root cause. Once we find the root cause, then we can administer help. Right. And we, you know, we know that for everything else. With any other condition, we know you treat the wound so the person can heal. With any other you know, uh, physical, mental condition, we know that God doesn't cure diseases. And yet we insist that you have to go to an AA meeting if you want to cure addiction uh, and start to pray because that's the only thing that's going to make you well. If you swap addiction with just medical condition in parentheses and you take our predominant approach, it is completely fucking bonkers. And we know that. If anybody said, oh, uh, you know, cancer, you know, I mean, since bubonic plague, we've known that God doesn't cure diseases. And yes, yet we insist this is true. We have these ideas that, um, you know, the people who don't recover are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And and these things that like, would you say that to somebody with cancer? And even the the medication, you know, that, that I take uh, buprenorphine or methadone, which, you know, it, these things are proven to work. And we have this idea that like, oh my God, it's just as bad as heroin. It's an extension of your addiction. You know, they're lying and all like that. Nobody would say that with, with insulin. I mean, nobody would say I've been on it for 13 years. I, of course, I don't want to be taking something every day. I don't want to be tethered to, I mean, I don't even want to take Advil when I have a headache, but I know that it's keeping me alive and it's making me the best person that I can be. So nobody would say to me, oh, you've been on this insulin for 13 years, when are you going to stop taking that life-saving medicine so that your, you know, your diabetes is clearly in check? Yeah, it is. And this is why it's in check. Um, you know, so for me, like if, if I'm susceptible to that kind of, you know, shame and stigma and I'm out in the world screaming about this stuff, I can't imagine what it's like for like, you know, a 20 year old kid in Kentucky whose parents are being, being fed this, this expert, you know, nonsense from, I mean, quack medicine is uh, experts without medical credentials, um, you know, pushing cures that involve magical thinking. And that's exactly what we're doing with with uh, these programs. You just hit on something my dad has said, and he's from Kentucky. Got a lot rest his soul, but that's something he, he would say all the time: is quack medicine. We don't know really what is medicine, and it doesn't matter if it's coming from doctor or your neighbor. It's all quack medicine. That's something he said right up until he passed away. But at the same time, we have that mentality. If a doctor is saying it, if our neighbor is saying it, if a seasoned professional is saying it, then it must be true. Well, I mean, I guess what I meant by that was more mm-hmm. the idea that, um, you know, my counselor in rehab didn't graduate from high school, and yet he's an expert. So the, the Faith and Abstinence program insists that the only way to achieve remission from a complex medical condition is to put your life and will in God's hands and work the steps of this uh, you know, anonymous self-help group. So if 
if, if an oncologist said that to a cancer patient, that would be insanity. Um, you know, so the idea that like maybe doctors don't know what they're talking about, sure, there are some doctors that don't know what they're talking about, but I'm certain that somebody without medical credentials is even less qualified to talk about it yeah. than somebody who's gone to school you know, for it. So we've got a, a million and a half um, licensed physicians in America right now. It's a pretty big number. If you have the most you know, obscure disease, there's probably five doctors in your town that can treat it. And yet of that a million, million and a half, 1,183 are, are um, certified in addiction medicine. So if 22 million people are struggling with addiction right now, that's a one in 18,775 ratio. It's not enough. I mean, it's just not enough. So we have these AA meetings and these things that pop up all over the place. And they're, even though they're, they're actually proven to kill you, we don't know that because they're more prevalent than these other things. And a lot of these faith and abstinence programs um, are, are contributing to the stigma of the medically assisted treatment because they feel anything other than Advil is you know, you're, you're stoned, you might as well be, you know, whatever. But I mean, you know, we learn in early childhood drug prevention that each type of substance has a different effect on our neural pathways. You know, if you drink, this happens. If you smoke pot, this happens. If you take acid, you know, that happens. And so we know that, you know, nobody can identify anybody that wakes up at seven o'clock in the morning and starts guzzling vodka and functions all day. I mean, we just know that, right? But there's mm -hmm. millions of people all over the world who are prescribed, uh, you know, prescription painkillers, um, all over the world for some kind of uh, physical malady. And we not only know they can function on them, we know they need them specifically to function, right? So we know these things, we know everything affects you differently. And yet we have this idea that like heroin is this crazy ass hardcore drug, but alcohol is totally fine because it's legal. I mean, alcohol can shut down all of your organs. Um, all other drugs combined can't cause that much damage. Alcohol withdrawal uh, can be fatal and has been known to be fatal, uh, you know, in a pretty high percentage of, of uh, times. No other drug is that addictive. So we accept that alcohol is safe because it's legal, but in fact, alcohol is safer because it's legal. During prohibition, alcohol fatalities were just as bad as the illegal drug fatalities are now because you know, if, if, if you buy a bottle of you don't know what it is and it turns out to be methanol, you can't prevent overdose. That's exactly what's going on with drugs right now. So the idea that everything uh, is safer when it's legal and regulated, I mean, that's just a fact, but we have this idea that, oh my God, if drugs were legal, more people would die. This is the leading cause of death in America right now. 280 people are dying every day because they don't know what they're taking. That's like if you open a beer, um, you know, if, if it's fair to assume that you could drink a beer without dying, right? Like you're not going to overdose on alcohol, but you couldn't drink a, a, you know, 12 ounces of methanol without dying. If you don't know what's in that bottle and it's methanol, you're dead. And that's what's going on here. So if you see the bottle and it says this is methanol, you're not going to drink it. And right. that's, that's, that's why illegal drugs are involved in, you know, are people still going to die if drugs are legal? Of course they are. People are dying from alcohol because it's legal, but it's safer. So the option isn't, we're not deterring the behavior with the laws. The, the question isn't, do you want people to use drugs or not? The question is, do you want people to die or not? Right. We see, I forget which country it is, they have marijuana cigarettes. And of the, all the drugs, it's supposed to be the safest drug. I don't know, but I'm not professional. But at the same time, they have it in cigarette forms, it's regulated. You can buy it, you have to have an ID like you do regular cigarettes. You get a pack, everything is regulated. We come to the US, we're starting to see it being legalized in certain states, but yet it's not regulated. So you can still not die from the uh, marijuana, but we don't know what's being put in the marijuana. Well, right. I mean nobody's ever died of a pot overdose so mm -hmm. that, that's not going to kill you but you're exactly right that's the problem and so like with decriminalization um 
that means you're not going to get arrested for possession for right. possessing the drug. It doesn't mean that you know what's in the drug. So the idea of like, if you look at it in terms of alcohol, if I don't know what I'm buying, but I'm holding a bottle of it, that's not when it's going to kill me. It's mm -hmm. the not knowing what I'm buying. And then when I open it and drink it, those are the problems. So not getting arrested for holding it, like, so what? I mean, it's, you know, you shouldn't be arrested. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but like, that's not the life and death danger there. So the idea that we're going to, you know, decriminalize, I mean, Oregon recently decriminalized, and I think it's an important step. And obviously it's not going to all happen mm -hmm. in time, but if you don't know what you're putting in your body, that's the highest risk of, of death. And you could know, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, every, every type of substance, the potency of every substance can be measured. We only measure potency of legal substances. Potency is by volume. That's why the pint of grain alcohol is going to kill you and the pint of beer won't. So drugs are exactly the same. I mean, when you see, you know, pills like Oxycontin, a, a 10 milligram Oxycontin pill isn't 10, like, you know, the 80 milligrams aren't hamburger yeah. size, you know? Um, so it's really, it's, it's just a question of knowing what you're using. And we have to get past this idea that like, um, you know, this moralizing and the idea that somehow it, it, it's not a fair equation. I mean, we, we have to be safe. An entire generation of kids is growing up now um, having lost parents, and friends to this, every overdose fatality is preventable. Accidental overdose is the leading cause of death. Accidental means preventable. It's preventable if you know the potency of the substance. Overdose is literally an overly potent dose. If you don't know what's in your pint glass and it's methanol, you're dead. The way to avoid that is to know that it's methanol in your pint glass. Legalization and regulation means you know what's in the pint glass. Like, that's it. I mean, it's that simple. It's a warning label. If you have your warning label, basically, you know what's in it and then you can go from there right and we we have you know we we have this idea that like legalization is going to lead to widespread use i mean you know i, I don't um I, I i never like drinking so you know I'm, I'm a bad example but like i don't buy beer every time i'm at the gas station if meth was legal i'm not going to go out and buy meth and start sticking in my jugular vein would you no right it's okay. just because it's legal doesn't mean i'm going to take it you have the people that are still going to take it because now it is legal and they don't have to lie about doing it right, but so at the same time safer. it's now regulated exactly so i would rather them be safer and the idea that like more people are going to do this because it's legal i mean if you're not buying beer and i'm not buying beer and we're not doing meth and all that kind of business and we don't know anybody who is then i don't know what makes us think that like the entire rest of the country is going to be, become a meth addict all of a sudden it's the same people so the laws aren't deterring the drug Laws don't stop people from using the drugs. Laws stop people from living. I mean, that's that's what it is. That pretty much is what it is. We've seen this with prohibition. Just because it's illegal doesn't make people stop doing it. No, it totally doesn't. Right. Exactly. I so, mean, yeah. I mean, would would more people be interested and curious and try it if it was legal? Sure. But would you rather have more people try it and live, or or more or the same number of people using it and dying? I mean, that's the question. Because. Now we go into another problem though, with being illegal, you have your dealers that cut in anything within the drug that they're selling. There's, right. so, I mean, there's no account, there's no, um, you know, they're not paying taxes either. And mm -hmm. the idea, I mean, you know, look, I think any halfway intelligent drug dealer has to be aware that a dead customer is not good for repeat business. I mean, it's just common sense. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no, there's, you know, there's, there's no, there's no quality assurance label. There's no 1-800 number to call if your heroin has some, you know, bad shit in it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's really uh, the difference. You know, you're not going to buy a beer that turns out to be methanol because Anheuser, you'd, you'd own Anheuser-Busch if that happens to you. Yeah. 
Um, you know, so it's it's really just, I mean, it's, it's um, we know the right thing to do. If drugs were out of the equation and we said something's really dangerous, if we did this, it would save lives. Nobody would have a problem with it. The minute you stick drugs into it, everybody, oh my God, that's terrible. So like the argument for legalization and regulation is actually the same as the argument against because the people who think, oh, if you're using drugs, then you deserve to die. Uh, you know, so drugs would be safer if they were legal and regulated. That's the argument. That's my argument for it. And the guy who thinks you deserve to die because you're using drugs, that's, that's his argument against. They shouldn't be safer. If you're going to be that stupid, you should die. I mean, and that's really, you know, the idea that like they have some kind of moral high ground for that argument. I mean, you're, you're morally objecting to making drugs safe and you think drug users should die and you think that you're the moral high ground. I mean, come on. You can't morally object to reducing harm. You really can't, but we're almost out of time. So how can our listeners and our viewers find you? Right. Um, okay. So I'm uh, davidposes.com is my website. Um, and david.poses at Facebook. We're on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm David the Kick. All of this stuff is, is on my website. Um, if you just go to my website, it's all there. And you can contact me and stuff. I, and I thank you so much for being on the show. And for all of our listeners and our viewers, the links for to find David are in the comment section for you to find because I like making this easy. And this is one of those discussions that need to be said more than once. <laughs> I think so, for sure. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show today. And for all of our readers and our listeners, happy reading.